We will be in Matthew chapter 18 today, and this will not be a normal recording. The recorder on Sunday uh, did not pick up the audio very well at all, so I am re-recording this, and hopefully it is helpful for those of you who listen via long distance. Uh, we had a good day on the Lord's Day, worshiping Christ together, and uh, Looking forward to the time when all of you can be part of that uh, as well. Uh, let's just pray and ask the Lord for his grace as we look into this. Father, you have given us your son, and we are grateful for all that you have done for us in him. And I pray that what we consider today would strengthen our love for Christ and our trust in him. Lord, you have done so much, and I pray that you would help us by faith to take advantage of all of the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus as a result of what we see today. We ask this in his name. Amen. The last couple of weeks we have been noticing that salvation is in Jesus Christ. We have considered together the work of God to unite all things in Christ. We have seen from 2 Corinthians 5 that when the man, Jesus Christ, walked upon this earth, God himself was in Christ. This man, Jesus, was God come in the flesh. And so in the person of Christ, God and man were reunited once again. Sin had separated us from God. God and man had had very little to do with each other since Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. But with Christ coming into this world once again, God walked upon the earth in the midst of mankind. And this was the beginning of a great reversal that will culminate, reach its climax one day when Jesus Christ returns to reign over this creation. And so... Our reconciliation with God, being set right with him, is really a matter of our being united to Christ. God is in Christ, and in order to bring about reconciliation between God and man, God joins human beings to Jesus Christ. And so, in Christ, God and man are reconciled and meet together once again. When we are united to Christ, we are restored to God. The scripture speaks of our being in Christ in several ways. This salvation is like citizenship in a new world. Uh, you can look at this in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Uh, it is like membership in a new human race. We are no longer in Adam. We are now in Christ. You can see this in Ephesians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is like inhabiting a new domain and entering into a new kingdom. You can see this in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. This salvation in Christ is like experiencing the death of a spouse in order to be, reuni in order to be united to a new husband. Romans chapter 7 verses 1 through 4. This salvation in Christ is like being delivered from this present evil age and beginning to participate 
as members of the age to come, the age of the Spirit. This is behind many of the promises of the New Covenant in the Old Testament, and it's what we see in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 5. It is like laying aside a filthy garment and appearing in public now in a fresh suit of clothes. We have put on the Lord Jesus. You can see this in Ephesians chapter 4, I believe it's in verse 24. But by far, the main way that God speaks to us about this salvation that we have in Christ is that we have been incorporated into Christ's body as a member of the body of Christ. And you see this throughout the New Testament, but one passage that's particularly helpful that we will look at later on today is 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. And the question that is before us now is, how do we get into Christ? How do we become members in Christ's body? And the scripture gives us two answers to that question. The first of those is found in Matthew chapter 18, verses 5 and 6. And the first means whereby God unites us to Christ is through our faith. We'll begin reading in Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. What is Christ saying here? It would be helpful for us, first of all, if we can identify who the little ones are in verses 5 and 6. And to answer that question of who this is referring to, look back with me at verse 3. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the implication is that if we were to turn and become like children, we would enter into the kingdom of heaven. And verse 4 tells us what it means then to become like a child. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the little ones, the children, in verses 5 and 6 that Christ is referring to, are not physical children. They are those who have humbled themselves and as a result are now citizens of the kingdom of heaven, of God's kingdom. These are Christ's followers. These are believers. And so this is who the little ones are. But notice what Christ says at the end of verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now that is a strong statement. And the question is, better than what? It would be better for him if a great millstone were tied about his neck and he would drown in the sea. But, but better than what? And the answer to that question we find in verses 7 through 9. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. 
For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. You can see the comparison there on the two sides of that word better in verse 8 and verse 9. On one side of the comparison is being thrown into eternal fire. Or verse 9, being thrown into the hell of fire. The other side of that comparison of what is better is that you should cut off your hand or your foot and enter into life. Or that you should cast away, tear out your eye and cast it away and enter into life. Now Christ is not saying here that if one were to cut off his hand or his foot or tear out his eye and throw it away that he would inherit eternal life. But he is saying that if it were your eye or your hand or your foot that were impeding your entrance into eternal life, it would be better for you to cut them off and to inherit eternal life than to retain them in this life and to inherit eternal damnation. And so when we come to verse 6, and he speaks about it being better for one to have a great millstone fastened about his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea, we've got to complete that comparison by looking at verses 8 and 9. And so what Christ would be saying is this, if somehow it were possible to avoid the fire of hell by having a millstone fastened about one's neck and being drowned in the depths of the sea, if that were possible to avert one's arrival in eternal flames, that would be the preferable option. It would be better for a man to have a millstone tied about his neck, to be cast into the sea to drown, if by doing that he might inherit eternal life. That would be the better case than if he retained his earthly life, if he were not drowned, and yet inherited the flames of hell. Now, once again, I observe that verse 6 is a very strong statement. And the question is, why does Christ make such a strong statement? Why is it so damnable to cause one of these little ones to sin so much so that it would be better to be drowned in the depths of the sea? And the reason for that is what we find in verse 5. I think it's important for us, first of all, to notice in verse 6 that the one who causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or to stumble, that person has not committed a sin himself. Now, we know that all men are sinners. But in this passage, it's not for his own sin that he ought to be drowned in the depths of the sea. In this passage, it has to do with the fact that he has caused one of Christ's little ones to sin. Is Christ saying then that to put temptation in front of a brother or a sister and to cause them to sin in that regard is just as bad as if you sinned yourself? Perhaps. We're not here to discuss that. I do tend to think that that is one implication of this passage. 
But why does Christ make such a strong statement about the one who causes a little one who believes in Christ to sin? And the answer to that is found in verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him, and so on as the verse goes on. You can see that causing one of these little ones to sin, in verse 6, is the opposite of receiving one such child in my name, in verse 5. The two ideas hinge over the word but at the beginning of verse 6. And so the person who causes one of Christ's little ones to sin does the opposite of what the person in verse 5 who receives one such child in his name does. So what is Christ saying this person does in verse 5? He says he receives one such child in my name. And in doing so, he receives Christ himself. Christ is not saying here, whoever receives one such child in my name, that is like receiving me. He says, the one who receives one such child in my name actually receives me. Paul heard Christ say a very similar thing to him on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul is not persecuting Christ. Christ is in heaven. He's imprisoning Christ's followers. And yet Christ says that that is the same as if Saul were persecuting him. And here, the one who receives such a child, one such child in my name, receives me. What, what is it that makes this statement in verse 6? Why does Christ react so strongly? And I think at this point we can begin to see that to receive a child, one of these little ones, a follower of Christ in his name, is to receive Christ himself. And so the opposite of that is to cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and that would be to not receive Christ himself. And of course, any man who does not receive Christ and the salvation that is offered in him is destined for eternal damnation. And yet I think there's more here than that. Christ says in verse 5 that the little one, one such child, is so closely connected with Christ that to receive the child is to receive Christ himself. And so to reject the child, to cause him to sin, to snare him, to trip him up, is to refuse Christ himself, to turn away from Christ himself. How did the child and Christ come into such a close relationship that to receive the child is to receive Christ? And the answer to that is found for us in verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. It's not apparent to us in our English translations, but the original language reads this way. Whoever receives, I'm sorry, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes into me to sin. How did the little one and Christ come into such a close relationship? The answer is, the little one believed into Christ. At one point, he was not in Christ. But then he believed. And that belief 
transferred him into Christ so that now he is in Christ. And so to receive the little one is to receive Christ himself. And so we see here in Matthew 18, verses 5 and 6, that our faith, the believing, is what transfers us into Christ. How do we get into Christ? How do we become members of his body so that we may access the salvation that God has wrought in Christ? The answer in Matthew 18 is faith. This is how we get into Christ. Now, last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. And there we saw that it is because of God's work that we are in Christ. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30. Here in Matthew 18, we find out that it is because of our faith that we are in Christ Jesus. So which is it? Is it God's work? Or is it our faith that ultimately unites us to Christ? And the answer is that it is both. If you would turn with me to Philemon chapter, uh, Philemon verse 4. This is a really critical matter to get your hands on, and much of the scripture will make more sense to you when you do. Philemon chapter 1, there's only one chapter in Philemon, verse 4, Paul says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Now, Anytime you thank God for something, you are thanking Him for something that He has granted as a gift. We do not thank God for things that He has not granted. We do not thank God for things that have come from ourselves. But Paul says, I thank God every time I remember you in my prayers. And what does he thank God for? I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus. Why do some believe in Christ? Where does that faith come from? You're a believer in Christ. You follow Christ. If Paul knew you, he would turn around, he would get down on his knees, he would look up to heaven, and he would say, Oh, Father, I thank you for the faith of this little one. Because ultimately our faith is a gift of God. He is the one who opens our eyes to see the beauty of Christ. He is the one who shows us his Son and the great salvation that is in him through the Scriptures. It is his Holy Spirit who comes to convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so when a man reaches out to Christ in faith, when a man believes into Christ, it is actually God's work. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. It is our faith that unites us to Christ, but God is the one who grants us that faith. And so ultimately it is God's work by which we are united to Christ. That's one aspect of how we become members of Christ's body. The second matter of how we become members of Christ's body and become part of him, adjoined to him, united to him, is found in Matthew chapter 3, or at least the beginning of it is. We'll look at several passages together here. You can turn to Matthew chapter 3, but first I want to read you Joel chapter 2 and Ezekiel chapter 36, a couple verses from each. Before we read those verses, though, think with me about Israel. 
God came to Israel, Exodus 20. He gave the nation of Israel ten commandments and many more laws besides that. And you can turn in your Bible at some point and read Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29. God gives great blessing upon those who will obey the commandments. And he promises great curse, a great curse upon those who do not obey. And of course, the nation of Israel is a spectacular example of the failure of human beings to keep the law of God. God promised in Deuteronomy chapter 29 that if they sinned against him, ultimately, they would be driven out of the land into captivity. And is that not exactly what God did? The Assyrians removed the northern ten tribes in 722 B.C. and the Babylonians destroyed Judah in, seven, uh, in 586 B.C. and they were carried away into captivity, just as God had promised. Israel's story is a striking demonstration of the principle that God's law plus fallen human will cannot produce righteousness. No man who is in the flesh is able to keep the commandments of God, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. And so how is it going to happen? How is it that human beings will live righteous lives before God? Or will God merely give up on that possibility? The answer that the scriptures give us is the new covenant. And you can find the new covenant foretold and predicted in passages like Jeremiah 31, Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 11. And you can find it in passages like Joel chapter 2 and Ezekiel 36. What was the missing component for Israel? Why is it that they could not walk in God's ways and keep his commandments? The answer is given to us in Joel chapter 2 verses 28 and 29. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The missing component was the spirit of God. Listen to Ezekiel 36. I will, verse 26, Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The missing component was the Spirit of God. And in Joel chapter 2 promises that God one day in the future would pour out His Spirit upon all of those in the kingdom of God. And the result would be that when He puts His Spirit within them, the Spirit will cause them to walk in God's statutes and to be careful to obey His rules. And it's in that context that what John the Baptist says in Matthew chapter 3 is instructive. Look at Matthew chapter 3 verse 11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to either unloose or to carry, depending on how that Greek word should be translated whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What is John saying? He is saying that what Joel foretold, what Ezekiel anticipated, the new covenant 
would come through the one that John is not worthy to untie the sandals of. One is coming after John who is mightier than he. and He will give you the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul is getting at when he speaks to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 of what he does. But before we get there, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Before we leave Matthew chapter 3, it would be good for us to notice just a couple of things. Notice the statement again at the end of verse 11. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit. Christ, then, is the baptizer. He is the one who performs the action. The Spirit is the medium. We speak of baptizing someone in water. The water is the medium. Here, John says that Christ will baptize you in the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit. What is the picture there? If you would think with me of a cup. The word baptize simply means to dip or to plunge or to immerse. Think of plunging a cup into a container of water and lifting it out. The cup comes out full of the water. That's the picture that Christ, that John is trying to portray here of Christ. He will plunge his followers into the Spirit and they will come out of that experience full of the Spirit. They will come to possess him. And just as Ezekiel prophesied, the Spirit would be within them from that point forward. And possessing the Spirit, then, in the New Testament is what it means to be in Christ, to be united to Christ. For example, if you would, and you don't have to turn there, but find my place here in my notes. Um, sorry, I lost my place here. Give me one second here to find what I'm looking for here. Okay, here we go. We were, we had just considered the fact that being baptized in the Spirit is coming to possess the Spirit within. And possessing the Spirit, then, is what it means to be in Christ. For example, throughout the New Testament, we see many things that Paul or the other apostles tell us that Christ has done for us, and then they turn around and tell us that that actually was the action of the Spirit toward us. For example, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, we are told that believers receive Christ, but in Galatians 3, 2, we have received the Spirit. In Philippians 3, 8 through 9, we've been justified in Christ, but in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, we've been justified in the Spirit. Christ dwells in our heart in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, but the Spirit dwells in our heart by faith in John chapter 14, verse 17. Paul tells us that Christ and the Spirit both are the alternatives to the law of sin leading to death in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, and Romans chapter 8, verse 2. Paul tells us that we are alive in Christ in Ephesians 2.1, but he says in Colossians 3.4 that we are alive in the Spirit. He says in Ephesians 1.13 that we are sealed in Christ, but in Ephesians 4.30 that we have been sealed in the Holy Spirit. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.2 that we have been sanctified in Christ, 
And yet he says in Romans 15, 16 that we have been sanctified in the Spirit. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19 that we hope in Christ. And yet Galatians chapter 6, verse 8 says that our hope is in the Spirit. We live in Christ, Galatians 2, 20, and yet Galatians 5, 25, we live in the Spirit. We walk in Christ, Colossians 2, 6, but Galatians 5, 16, we walk in the Spirit. We stand fast in Christ, Philippians 4, 1, but Philippians 1, 27, we stand fast in the Spirit. We rejoice in Christ, Philippians 4, 4, and yet Romans 14, verse 17, we rejoice in the Spirit. We live in Christ, Colossians 2, 6, and yet Ephesians 4, 3, we live in the Spirit. We speak the truth in Christ, Romans 9, 1, and 2 Corinthians 2, 17, and yet in the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, we speak the truth. We fellowship in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, and yet 2 Corinthians 13, 14, we fellowship in the Spirit. And that's why Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, equates the following phrases. Paul says, you are in the Spirit. And that means the same thing as this phrase, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And that means the same thing as this phrase, you have the Spirit of Christ. And that's the same as you belong to Christ, which is the same as Christ is in you. In other words, to possess the Spirit is to possess Christ. To be in the Spirit is to be in Christ. To have the Spirit in me is to have Christ in me. And it is this Spirit baptism, this work of Christ, plunging us, immersing us in the Spirit, so that we come up out of that experience possessing the Spirit of Christ. It is this Spirit baptism that transfers us from not in Christ to in Christ. And for that, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 makes this point explicit. When John said that Christ would baptize us in the Holy Spirit, what did he mean? 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Christ also has a body. It is one body. But just as your human physical body, which has many members, so Christ's body has many members. And the question is this, how did the many members become one? How are the many joined together in one? And the answer to that is given to us in verse 13. For because they are one body in Christ Jesus, because in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Who does the baptizing? Christ. In what are we baptized? in one spirit. And the result is that we are now one body in Christ Jesus. There's one spirit. If we all possess the one spirit, then we are all one. And to possess the spirit is to be in Christ. And this is what spirit baptism does. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we are baptized into one body, as though previously when we were not in the body, but the act of baptism joined us to the body so that now we are in the body of Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 3, we have been baptized into Christ Jesus. 
Romans chapter 6, verse 4, we have been baptized into Christ's death. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, we have been baptized into Christ. How do we get into Christ? Answer, spirit baptism. Christ's work to baptize us in the spirit so that we possess him. And possessing the spirit, we possess Christ. And so in summary, how are we united to Christ? How do we become members of his body? Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, we believe into Christ. Galatians 3.27, 1 Corinthians 12.13, we are baptized into Christ. Believe into Christ, baptized into Christ. This is how we become members of Christ's body. So let's see if we can summarize briefly here. You remember that we noted that our faith, Behind that actually stands God's work. Our faith is a gift of God that he bestows upon us. And we exercise it. We do not produce it. God produces that faith in us. And so God's work then, number one, leads to, number two, our faith. And our faith then, God responds to that, Christ responds to that, by baptizing us in the Spirit and the effect of that baptism is that we come to possess the Spirit. And as we saw in Romans chapter 8, all through those passages in the New Testament, possessing the Spirit is our union with Christ. And that's why passages of Scripture such as Romans 16 verses 7 and 8 say what they do. Look with me at Romans 16 verse 7. Perhaps you've read this passage and it hasn't quite made sense to you. Let's read verse 6. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Verse 7 of Romans 16. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved, in the Lord. Apparently, Ampliatus and Paul share quite a close relationship. Paul says of this man that he is my beloved. What is the foundation of that relationship? Why is it that Paul is so close to uh, Ampliatus? Was it that they were blood relatives? Was it that they had ministered Christ together? perhaps preaching in Rome together? Was it that they had shared an imprisonment for Christ's sake together? Was it that they had shared some experience together, such as climbing a great mountain or swimming a great distance through the sea, and now they are beloved friends? No, the foundation of this relationship is given to us in verse 8. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved, in the Lord. He is beloved in the Lord, beloved in Christ. And what Paul means then by that phrase, in the Lord, is actually shorthand for a Christian. Why does Paul love Ampliatus? Because they are both in Christ. They are both followers of Christ. They have both been baptized in the Spirit. And now there exists between them a relationship of love so that Paul can say, greet my beloved in the Lord the man 
in Pleiotis. And this is what we see in verse 7 then. Greet Andronicus and Junia. My kinsmen, perhaps they were Paul's blood relatives. Nevertheless, whether they were or not, they were his fellow prisoners. Apparently they had spent some time together, persecuted for Christ by inhabiting a prison together. These two, Andronicus and Junia, verse 7 says, are well known to the apostles. And they were in Christ before me. And I think right there there's a little picture for us, a little bit of history of these two, Andronicus and Junia. They are well known to the apostles. If you look in Acts 2, you will see that there were many Jewish proselytes who had come from Rome who were present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Peter stands up and he preaches his sermon. And 3,000 of those proselytes, those pilgrims who had come to Rome, 3,000 embraced Jesus of Nazareth as the Jewish Messiah, the resurrected Lord of heaven and earth. And as a result, they're baptized. They are added to the church that day, Acts tells us. But you remember that persecution develops in Jerusalem, and before too long, the church in Jerusalem is scattered. And these people return to their native homelands, in this case, apparently Andronicus and Junia, who were present in Jerusalem. On the day of Pentecost, it seems, uh, apparently they return to Rome, taking with them the message of Jesus Christ, and Paul greets them. But he says here that they were in Christ before me. When did the day of Pentecost take place? It took place a mere 10 days after Christ's return to heaven. Now, we know that Paul was converted to Christ on the road to Damascus fairly soon after Christ returned to heaven. And yet he was not converted to Christ nearly as quickly as Andronicus and Junia. They came to become followers of Christ. They became followers of Christ a mere 10 days after his ascension to heaven. And evidently, Paul became a follower of Christ, a believer, sometime after that on the road to Damascus. And for that reason, Paul says in verse 7, they were in Christ before me. In other words, the phrase in Christ is once again just shorthand for being a Christian. They came to be a Christian before I did, Paul says. They are known to the Jerusalem apostles. And so greet them in my name. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved, in the Lord. And what this tells us is it gives us an answer to this question, who is united to Christ? And the answer to that is every Christian. And so in conclusion, let's consider several things. First of all, let's consider that all believers are united to Christ. It is faith that unites us to Christ. God's work grants us faith. And faith unites us to Christ. And so every believer, everyone who has entrusted his soul to Jesus Christ in faith is united to him. And how does that happen? Christ baptizes every believer in the Holy Spirit. That spirit baptism is how we are united to Christ. That spirit baptism imparts to us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is why Paul says what he does in Romans chapter 8. He says to us, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, now just think about what that means for a minute. Jesus rose up from the dead. How did that happen? It happened because the eternal, 
undying spirit of God resided in Jesus of Nazareth. If the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. God's undying eternal spirit lives in you. It is this spirit who raised up Jesus from the dead. And if that spirit dwells in you as your possession, if you have been united to Christ by the spirit, the one who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. It is impossible that either the soul that neither the it is impossible that either the soul or the spirit of a follower of Jesus Christ will ever ultimately be lost. The spirit of God will give life to your mortal bodies just as he did to the body of Jesus Christ. And so, by God's Holy Spirit, by the baptism of the Spirit, we are in Christ. And that has great implications for us as we live our lives. Why does the Scripture tell us, in Ephesians chapter 5, that we ought to be filled with the Spirit? Everything that we've seen so far today indicates that we already have been filled with the Spirit by Christ's work in his act of spirit baptism. How then are we commanded to be filled with the Spirit? And the answer to that is given to us in the previous phrase of that verse. Do not be drunk or intoxicated with wine. You know as well as I do that wine is an intoxicating substance and that those who have consumed too much of it, they no longer are in possession of their bodies. They are controlled by that wine, by that alcohol. And they do things that in their right minds they would never do. That wine is a controlling substance. And taken into them, it takes over their life. This is what Paul means by being filled with the Spirit. The Spirit of God is in you. And as he says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. As Paul goes through his day doing what he does, he doesn't take credit for that. If you looked at Paul and said, what an unusually righteous man, Paul would turn around and say to you, it's not me. It's Christ who lives in me. How does Christ live in Paul? Christ is, has ascended to heaven. Yes, he's ascended. But he has sent his spirit in his place to be in you, to cause you to walk in his statutes, to be careful, to obey his rules. And so being filled with the spirit is a matter of getting up in the morning and walking forward into your day in conscious awareness that God's spirit dwells in you to cause you to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. It is a reality. Christian people do not proceed through their life in total defeat forever. Sin will not have dominion over you, Paul says. We possess God's Holy Spirit within us. And so we get up in the morning and we say, Lord, I have struggled with sin. 
but you have put your spirit within me to grant me victory, to cause me to walk in your ways. And Lord, I'm going to invest every bit of energy I have today in pursuing righteousness. And I'm going to do it not because I trust in myself, not because I assume that in myself I have the power to put on the fruits of righteousness. I'm going to do it because I trust in your promise that the Spirit of God is within me and that he will work through me to bear his fruit in my life. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to live your life as though God's promise that he were in you were true, to live your life as though God's promise that he will cause you to walk in God's ways were true. You live by faith in the Son of God who dwells in you by his Spirit, and it will no longer be you who is living. It will be Christ who lives in you by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so, every believer possesses the Spirit, and every believer is a member of Christ's body. There is no category of believer who is not a member of Christ's body. Every person who calls himself a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, is a member of his body because faith unites to Christ and Christ baptizes all believers in the Spirit so that they possess him and so that they may be united to him. Lord God, thank you for these things. I pray that you might grant us understanding. And as we look in the future, the next few weeks, about what these things mean for us with regard to our daily Christian life and our life as members of Christ's body, the church, I pray, Lord, that these things would settle down upon us with the glory, the joy that you intend them to have. And we ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen.